zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, we'll be discussing Friday the 13th, Part 2, released April 30th, 1981. It was written by Ron Kurtz, based on characters by Victor Miller and uncredited characters from the first installment's director, Sean S. Cunningham, directed by Steve Miner and released by Paramount Pictures. So I didn't look it up. Is April 30th a Friday? No. The 13th? <laughs> April 30th, <laughs> you might be surprised to learn, was not a Friday the 13th. <laughs> this is our first time covering a sequel to a movie that we have previously covered. Yay! Good Yay, for us. Hooray. It will also be the first time that we cover a third installment because Paramount was crapping these things out annually. It hasn't even been a year since the last one came out, and it's barely over a year before the next one. After the first film raked in almost $60 million from a $1 million budget, they were allotted $1.4 million for this one, and it eventually brought in $21 million. I feel like they could have spared more than an extra $400,000 for the sequel to the movie. That but they don't have to. That's the point. Well, then why bump it up at all? Why not just do a million again? Well, I mean, I think there's some expectation that you, you, you're you going to try harder, but not that much harder. <laughs> I guess. I feel like $2 million makes sense. Well, and I'm sure, like, the pro- the producer's fees went up sure, for, yeah. for the second one. Supposedly, the Friday the 13th films were initially intended to play as an anthology series with a completely different mass murder event for each installment. But like with the Halloween franchise, the studios did not have the balls to stick with the plan and instead asked for a direct sequel, even though at the end of the previous film, Jason and his mother were both dead. The working title for this installment was simply Jason. Adrian King, the final girl of the first film, was plagued by a stalker who worked his way into her life to the point that she was even telling him things that her stalker had done and eventually found herself at gunpoint. When the time came to make the second film, stories vary as to why King had such a small part and some cite her stalker as a disincentive to work in film at all. Others claim that her agent was demanding too much money, and honestly, I tend to believe that story more. I think whenever there's a money-related reason that that's the real reason that things didn't work out. Production began only a few months after the first film was released. I rewatched the trailer to this film. Uh Uh-huh after I watched the movie to see how well it portrays the film. And? The narrator says, On a June night in 1980, Friday the 13th, 12 of her friends were murdered. But in the whole movie, only 11 people die. Two of them were camp counselors that Mrs. Voorhees killed in the 50s, so they're not her friends. Another of those 11 is Jason, who drowned in 57, so hardly murdered, And the last is Mrs. Voorhees herself, who is decidedly not Alice's friend. At best, Alice was friends with eight of the deceased, but you'd have to include the snake among those eight. (laughs) Why should Friday the 13th, 1981, 
be any different. First of all, Friday the 13th, 1981 is not a date. There were three Friday the 13th in 1981. None in summer. You had February, March, and November. But this movie doesn't take place in 1981. It takes place in 1985. It also doesn't take place on Friday the 13th. But to answer your original question, the reason this year should be different is because Alice killed Mrs. Voorhees. (laughs) So she couldn't logically continue murdering her friends. Right. They also blatantly give away Crazy Ralph's death in the trailer for the movie. That's fine. I, I I had no problem with this character exiting. I the wanted franchise. him to be the Anthony Daniels of the Friday the Thirteenth, <laughs> the John Ratzenberger of this batch. He just just a pops in every now and then on his bike to say, yeah. "Oh, you're going Ooh. to camp blood, huh? <laughs> doomed. You're all doomed." I also like that this movie is set in the future. <laughs> yeah, for no apparent reason. I don't think they intended to, though. I feel like they meant it to be the next year but then they realized that that wouldn't happen because that would be really traumatic they're like oh whatever it's five years later and then they kind of forgot that they did that yeah it it causes (laughs) a lot of problems with the continuity and as a result the fan base has changed the years like canonically like they everything says that the first film took place in 1980 but it was actually 1979 and even though it's canon that jason's birthday was was june 13th and there was a june 13th friday the 13th in 1980 they actually meant to say a different month and it was a different year and it's like (laughs) no they didn't say it wrong it was Mm -hmm. still jason's birthday it was 1980 and this is supposed to be five years later so just deal with it they screwed up if nobody cared on set then that's their fault you don't have to figure it out i just would have loved like uh had they like just done something super weird like it's like we're gonna go into town and see that crazy time travel movie that just came out, <laughs> like like just like some just some random Something. bit of dialogue that was like inconsequential at the time, but, but it, it just was, happened to be true. Yeah, we start in a dark neighborhood where a kid we can only see from the knees down is singing "Itsy Bitsy Spider" as he splashes in gutter puddles until his mom calls him inside. We see a pair of adult legs follow him out of frame, accompanied by the traditional Harry Manfredini. The person playing Jason in this shot is the film's costume designer, Ellen Lutter, marking the first and so far only time that Jason was played by a woman. We will see Jason played by at least three more actors over the course of this installment alone. Are we sure that these legs are supposed to be Jason, though? I don't know who they, they are could, otherwise. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know who the kid is. They, we don't follow yeah. up on this bit. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to say, it's just to freak you out. It's yeah. just some random person. Yeah. It, I didn't even really need it. Just yeah. start with Alice. I mean, I, I don't even see why we're why we're doing this. <laughs> that would be weird, though, if just by coincidence another serial killer killed Alice at the beginning of this movie. It's even weirder if it's Jason. Yeah, because he's <laughs> dead. <laughs> and he, what he, because he drowned 50 years ago. Or, or we don't even know where she is. She could be, like, back in New York City, for all we know. Yeah. <laughs> like, he followed her all the way there. Yeah. Because he clearly walks there. Yeah. Like, if he's walking near puddles, he doesn't manifest. He had to take a bus or something to get there. Yeah. I mean, they never really indicate where this takes place, this cold open moment. But it's not. But the whole point of this camp is that it's, it's super far away from right. everything. Yeah. In Jason's POV, we approach a house with a light on upstairs and we crossfade into the lit room where Adrian King, as the previous film's final girl, Alice, is tossing and turning in the grips of a nightmare. Apparently, she just fell asleep with all the lights on. We get a flashback to the first film as Alice comes face-to-face for the first time with Mrs. Voorhees, or Voorhees, as she seems to be pronouncing her own name. 
She tells Mrs. Voorhees about her dead friends, and Voorhees tells her about Jason's tragic drowning. We fade out of the dream to Alice screaming in her bed, and then back into the first film. Alice discovers the bodies of all her friends, and suddenly she and Mrs. Voorhees are at each other's throats, until Alice grabs a machete and takes Mrs. Voorhees' head clean off. And we get another glimpse at that next stump that we've already seen since reused in two intervening Tom Savini films, Maniac and Eyes of a Stranger. This is a solid, like, five minutes worth of flashback. It's a lot. Yeah. Considering that the movie came out last year and you probably are seeing this one because you saw the last one, it seems excessive. Yeah. Savini was initially expected to return for this film, but he was already working on John A. Russo's Midnight and was also vocally disappointed in the sequel premise. So instead of joining the production late, he went on to work for The Burning instead, which we'll get to later, and is itself basically a Friday the 13th ripoff. In his place, Stan Winston was briefly attached, but also left due to a scheduling conflict, and Carl Fullerton was brought on to complete the film's effects. We'll talk more about him later. We flash back in Alice's dream to the final moments of the first film where the police arrive at the lake, and young Jason emerges from the water to drag Alice overboard, And then we see her in the hospital, where the cops inform her that they never found a young boy, and Alice suggests he must still be there. Ma'am, we didn't find any boy. Then he's still there. Still there. Still there. Still there. (laughs) She finally awakens with a startle and starts moving around her apartment in the present. None of this explains the end of the last movie any better, because... No. Like... It's, it's still up in the air whether no. that was a whole dream. It was a it? dream. It's a dream. It's for sure a dream? Yeah. Okay. But Jason's still alive. It's a dream because the person that pulled her off of the canoe was a child five years ago. Right. And now he would be grown. a gro- grown man. But it, it, he's not five years older than he was in that shot where he's pulling her out of the canoe. How, how old was he when he drowned? Uh, like 10 or 11, something like that, I think. Because well, then he was 16. He could have hit a growth spurt. I, I don't think the implication here. I mean, he... But he dr- he drowned in 57, though, right? Right. So he's he's at least in his 40s. Okay, that makes sense. She finally awakens with a startle and starts moving around her apartment in the present, which we will learn is about two months after the events of the first film. The phone rings, and it's her mother. Their conversation here reminds me of the one Dana Barrett has with her mom before the apartment goes crazy in Central Park West. Also, uh, classic 80s set design of plants everywhere yeah people liked plants i was like i haven't seen this many plants in a room since the changeling yeah (laughs) or happy hooker (laughs) happy hooker goes hollywood to all good night was like a jungle in there yeah adrian king says that this entire scene was improvised and that she was never given a script for the scene at all other than the basic blocking of where she would move around we're getting long shots following her through the apartment handheld from room to room possibly to convey the spooky jason pov we expect from this franchise in her kitchen we see a drawing that she's working on splayed across the table a subtle reminder that in the first film she was a bit of an artist having drawn a picture of camp director steve christie shortly before his death do i really look like that you did last night i kind of wish this was a drawing of jason from her nightmare though Mm -hmm. but it's not She changes into a robe and heads into the bathroom for the shortest shower I've ever heard. I timed it. It's 15 seconds. (laughs) We hear the water come on, and the handheld camera follows her into the room and slowly pushes into the curtain until it's whipped open not by a killer on the outside, but by Alice on the inside, and she's already done. The phone rings again, but this time there's nobody on the other end, implying that Jason 
knows how to use a phone, knew her phone number, yeah, and called her and from is, outside from, the house, yeah, from a different location, beca- nearby. Presumably, he phone. killed that kid and the kid's mom to use their phone. Okay, <laughs> because I have a question about the big reveal that's about to happen. Alice, for some reason, assumes that whoever called and hung up must be here watching her. She locks the door and peeks out the window before tiptoeing to the kitchen, where she finds the window open and curtains blowing into the room. She grabs an ice pick off the counter and creeps toward the window until a kitten is clearly thrown into the room. (laughs) It jumps onto her table art and meows at her. Alice opens the fridge looking for cat food and instead finds the rotting head of Mrs. Voorhees. Is that whose head it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but does so Jason not came prepared. He brought the head and put, put it in her fridge. Yeah. Assuming she would want a snack after her shower. He threw the cat in there. He threw a hungry cat in, knowing that she keeps cold food for a cat in the fridge. Okay. He's very smart. He's very savvy, <laughs> this Jason. An arm grabs her around the neck while the other hand plunges the ice pick into her temple. In an extended version of this scene, you can see the tip of the ice pick protruding from her nose when her face is turned to camera. The entire Alice scene was shot in two days. And before the scene ends... Two days? Yeah. How was that not one day? (laughs) I don't know. It wasn't. Before the scene ends, the teapot begins to whistle and Jason moves it to another burner, which is probably the closest thing to blatant comedy we've seen so far in the franchise. The Jason here who stabs Alice and moves the kettle was reportedly played by production assistant Jerry Wallace, who will later portray Jason's hands and feet in various inserts. And apparently the first time he went to stab her with the ice pick, it didn't collapse into itself like (gasps) it was supposed to, so it poked a little hole in her temple, and then they had to reset for another take. Oh, God. Actually, I think it fucked up the first two times <laughs> they talk about it in crystal lake memories oh my god yeah. i i feel like i would be like yeah i'm not doing that again yeah because you're gonna stab me through the skull with this prop yeah so they just use the one where they accidentally killed her <laughs> that's why she wasn't in the rest of the yeah. movie oh okay. that's the real reason <laughs> improv <laughs> big block letters that read friday the 13th slide up to the screen and instead of shattering glass this time they explode <laughs> i was like there better be a goddamn explosion in this movie then. Yeah. Because otherwise this makes, this is really dumb. And when they disappear, they reveal chrome-plated titles that read part two. We see a pickup truck roll up to a gas station, likely intended to resemble the one where Annie stopped for directions in the first film, but this is in Connecticut, and the first film was shot in New Jersey. Though it hasn't been indicated yet, we have just flashed forward five years from Alice's death by ice pick, which is what makes me think that this is partially an afterthought, but just put a little title in here that says five years later. <laughs> but the specific date. I need the specific yeah, exactly. date. <laughs> Friday the 13th, five years later? Exactly. Future camp counselors Jeff and Sandra Park hop out and run across the street to a payphone to call Ted and announce their arrival in town. While they speak on the payphone, we see a tow truck immediately start hitching up the pickup. Jeff is interrupted in his directions transcription by Walt Gorney as Crazy Ralph, back to spout prophecies of doom at a whole new pack of youngsters. I told the others they didn't believe me. You're all doomed. You're all doomed. In typical Ralph style, he straightens up and rides off on his bike again, (laughs) (laughs) leaving Jeff momentarily speechless. I I really just wanted to ride by and go, ring, ring. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) In the background. Sandra notices first that the truck is being towed away and soon both are racing after it on foot, pleading with the driver to stop, 
which he eventually does about a half mile down the road as he drags the car into the driveway of Ted's place. He laughs at them from the yard and they realize they've been pranked. Max driving the tow truck is in fact the owner of the gas station. Ted asks for help packing up the truck and they leave for the camp. Apparently what they're headed to specifically is a training camp for counselors. So last time we were at the camp just setting up with counselors mm -hmm. and the camp director. This time we're going to a training camp for counselors. So they just teach people how to be counselors, even though most of these people are experienced counselors. Yeah. And, and is this just some sort of attempt to explain away why we're not going to have children here? Well, I don't think it matters because it's only 48 hours. Like it could very easily be the weekend before kids are supposed to show up. Yeah. or maybe, But maybe that's just too similar to the first one. Have they? Uh, now, I don't have the whole series memorized. Is there a Friday the 13th that has kids involved? Like the Jurassic World version of this story where there's I actual clients? Know. I've literally uh, never seen any of the rest the, of these the, movies. The, yeah, I mean, I've seen clips of other ones, but... I don't think there is. I think it's always just counselors. At least for the ones that involve a camp at all. Yeah. You know, we move beyond camp. W when we go to space, what happens? Yeah, <laughs> there's kids? kids in space. <laughs> Weren't there kids in the first one, though? No. No. Mm -mm. No, it was going to be like two weeks before any kids showed up. Yeah, they were just prepping the camp. It's, it hasn't even been a year, Richard. I know. Well, because now <laughs> I, I have this this movie in my head. They're, I mean, they have flashbacks to kids swimming in the lake. Oh, are you thinking of the 50s? Um, in the 50s when Jason drowns, there were kids at the camp because no, the camp was in session. No, I just have like a vision of a movie ahead. Maybe it's it's uh, maybe it's Little Darlings. Of like kids in camp, and yeah, I, and, I just and you're mixing it up. Yeah, I think that's what that's it possible. is. Ted claims to know Paul, the guy running the course, and he thinks he's a bit macho, but a good guy. Along the way, Ted tells a joke about a bear using a rabbit as toilet paper. That's the whole joke. Yeah, there's a running gag, haha, of telling bad jokes. Yeah. They come upon a massive branch in the road, and for some reason, Jeff has to ask what it even is. <laughs> they park the truck and get out to drag it to the side of the road and assume someone dragged it into the street in the first place, but I would have guessed this fell off a truck since it's already sawed off at one end. But I have learned now to never get out of my vehicle if something is blocking the road. Yeah, just crash into that shit. No, I'm just saying. we have th From th Motel Hell? Like, th within the last year, I've seen so many movies where like people are attacked by... You put something in the road and then... Yeah, get out and move those cardboard cows. No! <laughs> Don't you want to be sausage? They even we do it to trains. <laughs> Did they? In Catalani. Oh, yeah. They didn't really get much, though. They got dinner. They, okay, they got baseball equipment. <laughs> we follow Sandra as she wanders through the nearby wilderness. Someone watches her from behind a tree. Off the road, she finds an old sign for Camp Crystal Lake. Is that the reason for this branch in the road, to remind them that Crystal Lake exists and to lure them closer to it? Seems like... I if, don't know. If you don't want them to come to Crystal Lake, you shouldn't force them to make a detour next to the sign for the place. What do you well, mean you, they, he doesn't want... Th I assume he wants people around to kill. According to Paul's legend later, he doesn't want people encroaching on his lake. That's the whole reason he oh. kills people. Okay. Well, yeah, because it, it wouldn't matter had they had this branch not fallen or been placed there yeah they wouldn't have even talked about camp crystal lake if he hadn't stopped them next to where the sign fell over well no they would have because paul would have given the warning about kids not going don't go over there oh maybe that, that i think i feel like that scene would have still happened then this is completely irrelevant it's just uh it's just for jason to get a look at everyone mm, okay 
Ted tells them that that's another camp, nicknamed Camp Blood, on the same lake as where they're headed. So we're not even going to Camp Blood? Nope. It's just a different place next door. Jeff obviously has follow-up questions about Camp Blood, but Ted pretends he doesn't have time to explain. Sandra tosses the sign back into the plants, and I just noticed a decal on the pickup truck here, and it's labeled The Outlaw 2, this truck. Out in the wilderness, we see a hand pull branches out of our POV as someone watches The Outlaw 2 pull away. On the porch of a cabin on the water, we see Paul ring a bell, and a bunch of counselors in training start reporting for duty. A young man in a wheelchair, Mark, is pushing himself down a gravel path, and a girl, Vicky, offers him a push, which he refuses. We see a young woman we will come to know as Terry in a half Mickey Mouse shirt and short shorts on a jog with a puppy named Muffin. So I love that you say we'll come to know because until the end of this movie, when people are constantly yelling out for people's names, (laughs) I had no idea who anybody was. Well, he does like a brief roll call. At the beginning of this kind of. conference. And and like they kind of introduce each person at least once, but there was like a there's like a scene coming up. Uh we'll we'll get there. But I was just like I'm just writing down things like I was like, girl with dog, uh wheelchair guy, Peter Gallagher. Uh I, I was just like I just like I don't know. <laughs> That's what your code name for Scott because yeah. the eyebrows? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't okay. know who these people I are. I missed Peter Gallagher being in this one. <laughs> As she moves down a path, a hand extends from the bushes and uses a slingshot to fire a pebble at Terry's ass. It looks like the rock hits her right butt cheek, but she grabs the left one before turning around to see the slingshotter was another counselor in training named Scott. And I checked this over and over again. It definitely hits the right butt cheek. Back into the left. (laughs) Back Back into into the the left. (laughs) She smirks at him and he winks at her. She's into this. Like... A lot of people think that this is a gross interaction and that she's disgusted by this guy, but she laughs and smiles at all the dumb stuff that he does over the course of the movie. They all gather outside Paul's cabin, and he gives them a speech about how counselor jobs aren't as easy as everybody thinks. At the start, he calls out people from the crowd that he's worked with in the past, and somewhat comically, he's only vaguely sure that he's worked with Mark. And Mark, I know we worked a season or two together, right? I don't know if it's progressive or ableist that he doesn't remember wheelchair guy. (laughs) Uh, or, I mean, perhaps he remembered him before the accident. Oh, maybe. Do, wait, do we know what caused him to be in a wheelchair? Yeah, yeah, he oh, says. I forget. Well, we'll get there. It'll be so exciting for you. <laughs> we cut to Ralph riding his bike down a narrow dirt road in the woods when he's overtaken by a convertible VW bug. The car pulls through the gate at the Pakanak Lake Region Counselor Training Center. That's where we are. Paul is complaining to the group about some staff members who haven't shown up yet when the VW comes rumbling down the path, driven by his assistant, Ginny. The car dies right as she's pulling up, and Paul gestures for her to follow him into a cabin. He chews her out for getting here late when everyone else was here early. said I was sorry. You did? I'm sorry. Okay? She says she's been having car trouble, and he says she could have called, but she points out that the phones here aren't even working yet. Uh, this is the scene where I was like, where she keeps saying Paul, 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 Paul. I was like, okay, now can you do this? What for, is his name? Can you do this for each of the other characters <laughs> in this movie? Ginny, <laughs> uh, I was starting to worry about you. Bullshit, Paul. He heads back out to the group. He asks Ginny to move the bug somewhere else so the cabin's not crowded with cars, but she can't get it started. Paul tells everyone that despite what you've heard, bears are dangerous. Wait, what did you hear? <laughs> did you think they just walked around on two legs stealing picnic baskets and that was it? 
No, I think you could just walk up to them as they cross a fence and push them off. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> if they're bothering your dogs. <laughs> yeah. Of course they're dangerous. He tells them not to get in food fights, to change their clothes often, not to bother with perfume. And uh, keep clean during your menstrual cycle. I read somewhere that their periods attract bears. The bears can smell the menstruation. Well, that's just great. You hear that, Ed? Bears. Now you're putting the whole station in jeopardy. I was going to say that, damn it. <laughs> Turns out, though, there's no scientific evidence for menstrual blood attracting bears. It does attract the weird monster things in pitch black, though, right? Yes. That's true. It so. absolutely does. <laughs> if you want to keep them at bay. <laughs> After listening to her try to start this car for like 15 minutes straight, Paul finally wanders over to the back of the bug to show her what she's doing wrong. On the way, he makes mention that she's a child psychology major, and she jokes about using her education on him. When she steps on the gas, it belches a bunch of smoke in his face, but it actually starts. So I think this was a prank that she played on him. We crossfade to that night where everyone is sitting around a campfire, and Paul is telling them the story of Jason Voorhees. Evidently, he drowned in 57. His body was never discovered. Paul says the elderly locals think that Jason's living out here in the woods, surviving off the wilderness. He talks about the murders at Camp Blood, meaning the events of the first film in 1980. He says the lone survivor claims to have seen Jason and then disappeared two months later. Paul explains that Jason is not dead, that he watched as Alice beheaded Mrs. Voorhees by the lake and plotted his vengeance. He claims based on nothing that this vengeance applies to anyone else who encroaches on his territory out here. But he says the legend has it. It's like, what legend? Yeah. Legend? Well, according to the legend. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to the changeling. Yes. Everyone looks pretty creeped out by the story as Paul explains that it's been five years since Alice's death in the cold open, meaning we are now in 1985. But if it's 1985, then this film does not take place on Friday the 13th because the only Friday the 13th that year were in September and December, and this is supposed to be early summer. Paul's spooky story is punctuated by the sudden shouting of what looks like a tribal warrior with a huge spear that comes flying out of the trees. Everyone scrambles in different directions until Paul walks over to remove what turns out to be a rubber mask from Ted, who's just played a successful prank on everyone. As Paul and Ginny head off for the night, he tells everybody that Crystal Lake is off limits, that this was the last conversation anybody's going to have about it. We got it out of the way. Stop talking about it. Inside the main cabin later, we see all the couples pairing off. Sandy and Jeff are playing grab ass. Vicky starts groping all over Mark's biceps as he wins an arm wrestling match. And Scott pops his collar to start hitting on Terry again. But she doesn't want to dance, so he turns his attention on her dog, Muffin. Which I thought was adorable. Yeah. And it's working on her, too, because she's, like, laughing about it. We cut to a POV from outside the cabin and then back inside where Scott is carrying Muffin around the party talking to her. Somehow this is working on Terry. Ginny destroys Paul on a chessboard by the fireplace, and it takes him a moment to even figure out how he lost. While Jeff and Sandy dance, she confesses that she needs to see Camp Blood for herself. Ginny heads back to her cabin for the night, and after she changes into a robe, we notice a man's shadow cross the front of her cabin. Not just any man. It was very obvious who this man's yes, shadow quite, was. Quite clear. And I was like, that's not even a, a, a reveal. Yeah, that's not a tease at all. Someone knocks on her door, but when she comes to check on it, nobody's there. And the moment she steps back inside, a hand wraps around her face and she freaks out, but notices quickly that it's Paul playing another prank on her. They start kissing again, which Paul claims they have to keep secret from everyone. And we cut back outside to see crazy Ralph watching them. The shadow we saw across the front of the cabin was clearly wearing Ralph's hat, so it must have been Ralph. Ginny tells Paul that she has something to tell him. 
Ralph is distracted suddenly by a sound, but when he turns to look for it, we see someone throw a length of what looks like barbed wire around his neck and start choking him against the tree. So I'm trying to figure out the logistics of this. Okay. So is Jason in the branches of the tree? I think he's standing on something tall on the on the back side of the tree. Right. But the whatever the loop of material is yes. does not come around in front of him. It drops down yeah. in front of him. So I think what so Jason he, did like, was so hand it around. He handed it around the front and of the had tree his and arms it down. looped around this tree mm-hmm. waiting for Ralph to get into a remotely close or, position. Or didn't even throw it around until Ralph was already against the tree. But then the tree. this tree is, has to be completely cut off no. just above Ralph's head. No. All he has to do <laughs> is wait for Ralph to stand beside it and then be in a position where he could strangle him and then quickly hand the wire around and strangle him. Okay, so Jason's just super tall. He doesn't have to be super tall. He just has to be tall enough for his hands to reach out of the shot. He could just hand the wire around the tree and then pull it down and strangle Ralph. I, I don't know. The way it's the not shot, that wide a tree that he couldn't reach around it The to way his own the hand. shot is framed, though, he seems like he, he pulls it up like he's higher than Ralph. Yeah. And so, like, it just, like... Well, keep in mind, this is a 40-year-old uh, retarded child from... <laughs> who drowned well, I know. in the That's 50s. why I'm picturing him just kind of, like, crouched in the branches. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Waiting. I don't know how he did this. But it didn't seem that impossible to me. And why kill Ralph? It doesn't make sense for yeah, Ralph to Yeah, he's die. on your team. He's the one telling people to stay away from here. Unless maybe he really does like the killing and he wants people to come. In the morning, we see Ginny wake up alone in bed wearing Paul's shirt. She finds the words, beware of bears written in lipstick on her mirror, implying that what she had to tell him the night before is that she was on her period. We cut to all the counselors jogging down a dirt road in the wilderness. Mark is sitting in his wheelchair on the sidelines criticizing everyone's times, and Jeff turns around to flip him off. We cut to another breathy POV tromping through the woods and watching the counselors from about 15 feet away. Ginny can't shake the feeling that someone's watching them and keeps pausing to look around. Yeah, I, it, it took me a while to figure out what's going on. The reason they always look around is because they keep hearing someone go, psh, 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 Oh, they're <laughs> hearing the Manfredini score? <laughs> they, that's the only thing that makes sense because as soon as it starts doing it, they, they go, hmm, is someone there? I think her, <laughs> I think her Ginny sense is tingling. That sounds wrong. <laughs> We see Muffin wandering alone through the wilderness, and then we watch in Jason's POV as the dog walks right up to his feet. We hold on the dog for a second and then cut abruptly to hot dogs being cooked on an open grill. That's a fun cut. Ginny is using a chainsaw to make firewood and handing it off to Ted to put under the hot dogs. (laughs) It's because I really like Ted. It's like, come and get him. And Jeff's like, I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just give it to me now. We cut to Terry frantically searching for Muffin in the wilderness until somebody shouts lunch and she immediately abandons her dog. Ginny returns to her cabin to put away the chainsaw and again thinks that she can feel someone watching her. All the counselors head down to the swimming hole and Sandy takes this opportunity to convince Jeff to take her to Camp Blood again, but he's still hesitant. Jeff, what? You ready? For what? Camp Blood. Oh, come on. It's only a short walk. They'll never know we're gone. Jeff, I'm serious. I really want to see it. Look, when we get back to the city, we can tell everyone we were there. Why, though? I never Because it's called Camp Blood. I'd want to see it if five people got murdered, or seven, or eleven, or whatever. But everyone else is perfectly content to let it go 
for some reason she is just really obsessed with it yeah it, it would be different she's if we, the cool kid <laughs> but for me it would be different if like that's all she was talking about like in, when we first introduced her it's like it's like oh i can't believe we're gonna be on the same lake where all those murders are like yeah like build it up but all of a sudden she just goes i want to go see camp blood and it's like but what are you even expecting to see blood stains blood yeah <laughs> that's the whole point of going to camp blood isn't it it's a misnomer. Going to Camp Blood, ain't you? <laughs> it's actually more of a compound than a camp. <laughs> compound blood. She basically just wants to do it for bragging rights. It's the same reason a bunch of dummies stayed overnight in the funhouse earlier this season. Jeff relents, and the two of them sneak away to Camp Blood. At a lifeguard station by the lake, Ginny shares a joke. Okay, you guys, well, I got one. Ready? Mm-hmm. What's green and red... And goes 100 miles an hour. What? Frog in a blender. <laughs> ah, that wasn't fun. And then it's Ted's turn. Uh-oh. It's brown, it sits on a piano. Your face. <laughs> Beethoven's last movement. <laughs> but wait a minute. Why did Beethoven poop on the piano right before he died? <laughs> wasn't he deaf? Cause, cause <laughs> don't deaf people poop on pianos? I'm just, I, I need this joke explained to me. Well, because when when you die, your muscle control. <laughs> yeah, he accidentally played the brown note. Oh no! On the piano, and then he was like, "This is too embarrassing. I quit." So it was his last movement. <laughs> but he wouldn't have been able to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't involve your brain translating it. Your he's, anus he's hears vibrating. it. He's such a genius that just thinking of the brown <laughs> That's note what it makes is. it happen. <laughs> he hears it with such clarity in his mind. Jeff and Sandy continue wandering through the woods, and we notice someone following them. They finally come to a no trespassing sign and step over the fence. We see the legs of someone following them as they come across the remains of a dog lying belly up in the leaves. Its stomach is torn open, and they assume this is the work of a wild animal. Suddenly, a cop taps on their shoulders, and they spin around. We cut right to Paul's office, where the cop is reminding him that Camp Crystal Lake is condemned, and no one's allowed to go there. The real reason they never make it to Camp Crystal Lake is because this film was shot in a different state, which seems like a mistake to me. So we don't get to see Camp Noby Bosco at all in this one, even though it's still there and it looks the same as it did in the first movie, and we never go back to it in any future Friday the 13th. Hmm. Jeff tries to accept the blame for this trespassing, but Paul tells him that he'll handle it. The cop says that he hears what Paul does to train these kids is a useful service, and he just wishes that they hadn't set up camp so close to Crystal Lake. Paul excuses Jeff and Sandra, and the cop is flabbergasted that he's not going to punish them, so he makes up a punishment on the spot. What kind of place is this? Ginny? Yes, Paul. No seconds on dessert for Jeff and Sandra tonight. Ginny struggles not to laugh at the joke punishment, and the cop is obviously fuming. In the credits, he's just called the cop, but the novelization refers to the character as Deputy Winslow, which reminds me of Deputy Winston, the Giuseppe Andrews character from Eli Roth's Cabin Fever. He's a party man. Do you realize how many great parties we're going to have? We see Jeff and Sandra walk down to the lake and debate whether or not they should tell Terry what they found, ultimately deciding against it, which is weird because they didn't seem to recognize Muffin when they found her, but now they're acting like they know exactly what it was. But But also, they also said, is it a dog? It's too mangled to tell. It's like, that's the dog. It's clearly a dog. It's clearly a dog. It's clearly a Shih Tzu. Like, I don't even know dogs, and that's clearly the same kind of a dog as what she lost. But it's not Muffin. right? Right. Okay. But the the fact that it was a Shih Tzu, and we're supposed to think that it's Muffin, and they're, yeah. and they're arguing over whether or not they should tell Terry, right, makes me think they they're pretty certain that it was Muffin. Sure. But when they found it, they were like, I don't know what that is. 
That could be anything. Heading down the road, leaving camp, Deputy Winslow sees someone run across the road into the woods and begins pursuit. After a lot of running through the woods past a small pond or a large puddle, (laughs) the cop finds a dirty hovel built from big pieces of repurposed wood leaned against each other. Inside is also a disgusting mess. And, man, this, this cop is relentless. Like, after a while of running through the woods, I'd be like, hmm... I should probably go back and call this in. Because it doesn't look like he's following something that he sees visually. It looks like he's literally just running in a direction hoping that he'll cross paths with whatever he saw. Yeah, and and just getting lost. I mean, I'm sure he's he's a local cop, so he probably knows these woods a little well. Yeah. But... Like, what? What is? what is your plan? Are you going to walk this guy that you catch all the way back to your car? Yeah. Are you strong enough to do that? He moves around the inside of this hovel, but it at least has a toilet. <laughs> and a little it privacy can't curtain. possibly be connected to any kind of plumbing. But it also doesn't look like anyone's using it. So it's a decorative toilet, probably. He's got a whole lake. Who needs a toilet? I don't know. He dragged one in here. <laughs> It's decorative, yeah. like you said. You ever try dragging a toilet up through two flights of stairs? <laughs> he used the piano already. <laughs> yeah. Jason's last movement. <laughs> Once you fill up the piano, what do you do? <laughs> They're all brown notes now. <laughs> he starts digging through cabinets trying to find something. I don't know what. Like, the person you saw is not in these cabinets. What do you think is going to be up here? He pushes through a doorway into a second room of the shack and seems shocked by what he sees, but before we get a glimpse, Jason is behind him with a hammer and buries the claw in the back of Winslow's head. We hard cut to the counselors having dinner on the porch of the main cabin, and Paul lets everybody know that training gets serious tomorrow. Anybody wants a last night on the town, now's your chance. Hands go up all over the place, and Paul informs Jeff and Sandy that they're in charge of watching the camp while everybody else goes. Terry decides to stay behind with them in case Muffin returns. And it would have been nice of them to be like, oh, well, we'll keep an eye out for Muffin. You go have fun since they know her dog is dead. (laughs) Or at least they assume that. But as a result, Scott decides he's also going to stay. Vicky starts hitting on Mark in the wheelchair again. And when he says that he'll stay behind because he's in training, Vicky decides she'll stay with him. With only three couples staying behind, two carloads of counselors head into town. Right away, Terry says that she's going for a walk. We see someone's shadow move across the side of the cabin in the direction Terry left. But judging from the hair on the shadow, I'm guessing this is just Scott following her. Terry walks out to the lakeside, apparently in search of Muffin. We cut back to town where two carloads of counselors are arriving outside of a casino. And then back to the lake where Terry is stripping under a full moon to go skinny dipping in freezing water by herself. Always good to go swimming by yourself, especially at night. (laughs) Yeah. Her hair is wet before she gets in the water. And we see her jump in and swim away from shore. We cut back to Paul's cabin, where Mark is beating Jeff in an arm wrestling contest. But Sandy tells him not to waste his energy, because they could wrestle in another room. Don't wear yourself out. You want to wrestle, come with me. For the rest of this scene, Vicky speaks to Mark exclusively in double entendres. Want to take me on? When they leave, Vicky challenges Mark to a game of hockey on some handheld video gaming system. I only want your fingers. What? Apparently, this is Milton Bradley's microvision, and despite mentioning a football and hockey game, the cartridges in these games are for Connect 4 and Blockbuster, which, as the name would suggest, is just a ripoff of Atari's Breakout. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a video game where you get to rent home movies? Nope. <laughs> you just pick a movie, but you don't get to watch it. Yeah, yeah. You just pay just for it at the register. and Try not to accumulate late fees. Yeah. <laughs> 
Which one do you prefer? The one with the puck. She makes it sound so sexual, but I have no idea how. What do you want to play for? Position. Back at the lakeside, we see a hand collect Terry's clothes from where she left them. She comes out of the water toward her clothes, and Scott teases her with all of them bundled up in his arms. He leads her around for a while, but eventually steps into a rope trap, which tightens around his legs and swings him upside down. He assumes that it's one of Paul's wilderness traps and pleads to Terry to help him. I gotta let you hang, you pervert. Have we seen any other wilderness traps? Well, and why would he try to capture a bear? Why would you try or to Or counselors. <laughs> Maybe he was trying to catch the dog. <laughs> Maybe. All planned on eating it's muffin. It's my muffin trap. <laughs> that sounds strong. <laughs> the dog would be destroyed by this trap. It just like tighten around his waist. <laughs> just hangs it. She offers to return to the cabin to get a knife to cut the rope while he dangles there. A POV from the wilderness watches Terry on her way back to the cabin, and she tosses her towel into the bushes right at the camera and potentially right in Jason's face. She searches for a knife in her room, but the lights aren't working, and we cut back to Scott hanging upside down from the trap. He wonders out loud where Terry went, and suddenly a hand grabs him by the hair and drags the dull side of the machete across his neck, slitting his throat. Apparently this was not a prop machete, so using the sharp side was too dangerous, so they hoped people just wouldn't notice. What? not a prop machete what causes other okay. problems too that we will get to yeah. yes i yes i noticed both sides being incorrectly used and i'm like well maybe this isn't actually a machete maybe i'm wrong about which side is sharp and i'm sitting there googling I'm like no it's a machete and they're using the wrong side yeah but like presumably it was scripted as this kill would happen with a machete so how do you get this far into your production shooting Without having a prop machete. You know what, though? They do have a prop machete. Because they use it later. They use the prop machete on two other people, but this is a real machete. Okay, so they, they have one at some point. They just don't use it here. That's right. weird. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. Fun fact, Scott is the first of Jason's victims to be killed with his signature weapon, the machete. Bizarrely, this is not the first time that we've seen this actor, Russell Todd, hanging upside down dead. Do you recall the last time we saw that? Probably not. This is the guy from the movie within the movie that starts He Knows You're Alone, that's on the date with the girl in the woods and then gets hung upside down oh. with his class ring clacking against the window. Oh, gosh. Terry eventually finds a Swiss Army knife and a backpack in her closet. Well, and there's kind of an interesting shot here when she's looking around because she ducks down, but the camera doesn't follow her down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she comes she back, pops up. back up. And I was like, oh, okay, that was kind of neat. Yeah. I, like, I liked how that looked. Because she... Cause she was in focus when she went down, and they shifted the focus for when she came back up. Yeah. And I was like, that that worked. I liked it. But she's got her knife, and she goes back to where Scott is dangling, and he's facing away from her so she doesn't notice that his throat is slit until it's too late. Once she gets him spun around, she starts screaming, and as she turns to leave, she continues screaming directly into camera as though someone else were standing there. And we cut to a band playing at the casino. This band, the Smoky Boys Band, is still around and performing. You can find their Facebook page. We follow a waitress through the bar to where Ginny, Paul, and Ted are drinking. Ted hits on a bartender for a bit until Ginny asks about the Jason legend. Ted thinks all this Jason stuff has been blown way out of proportion. Yeah, this whole thing's ridiculous, really. You know, two of our kids got holed in today. It was five years ago. Some girl I don't know, panics and falls out of a canoe. But Ginny seems to think... <laughs> 
Yeah. They, they <laughs> obviously didn't find bodies at this place. No, or... no, no. She just fell out of a canoe and dreamed the whole thing. Decapitated woman. This is way blown out of proportion. But Ginny seems to think that there's some truth to this Jason story and asks them to consider it, seemingly putting her child psychology education to use. Ginny asks what kind of person Jason would be now. I mean, let's try to think beyond the legend, put it in real terms. I mean, what would it be like today? Some kind of out-of-control psychopath? A frightened retard? A child trapped in a man's body? Apparently the original line was frightened mongoloid, but they were worried it was too offensive, so they replaced it with frightened retard. Weirdly, it seems less <laughs> offensive now. Which almost never happens. You never get a word that was offensive in the 80s and now it's like, what is a mongoloid? I don't even know. She makes the same logical leap as Paul here and assumes that Jason must have seen all the counselors that his mother killed and finally the one that killed her. If that were the case, why wouldn't he just call to his mother and interrupt all the murders so they could be reunited? Like, oh mom, I'm here. I've been here the whole time. <laughs> just looking for you. No need to avenge me. Instead, he just watched her kill everybody and then swore revenge when one of them killed her in self-defense. Paul assures her that Jason is just a legend. Back at the camp, Sandy leads Jeff upstairs and Vicky asks Mark what happened to necessitate his wheelchair. A motorcycle accident paralyzed his legs. Is it permanent? Doctors think so. I don't. She covertly asks if his junk still works and he assures her it does. Upstairs, Jeff plays the harmonica in bed and very quickly he and Sandra are making out. Harmonicas do it every time, ladies. <laughs> Back downstairs, Vicky is making out with Mark, and she says that she needs to gather some things so they can spend the night together. There's a weird bit of flashing lightning with almost no thunder as Vicky moves into the room that she shares with Terry and also finds the lights out until she sees the plug has been yanked from the wall and she just plugs it back in and everything's working again. She changes her shirt and picks out her sexy brown panties <laughs> so that Mark won't find out about her IBS. <laughs> <laughs> a pov is watching her change through some branches vicky spritzes herself with perfume and her junk which she was specifically told not to yeah for a moment i thought it might be awesome if just this one character was killed by a bear instead of jason <laughs> <laughs> she hears a sound outside and moves to secure the storm shutters that are blowing around in the wind she walks around a lot of the camp without pants on yeah, yeah. <laughs> including to search her car for something when she's bent over in the car, the POV just watches her butt from behind until she finds a hairbrush and rushes back inside when it starts to rain. Mark is still waiting for her to come back, and he rolls out onto the porch to find her. We're hearing Manfredini's killer sounds, so Jason must be close. Out of nowhere, a machete is buried deep in Mark's face, backward again, and it's cutting across his nose diagonally. The force of the hacking sends him rolling down the steps and then down another long flight of stairs toward the lake. As his chair bounces chaotically down the steps, we freeze frame and push into the body as we fade up to white and then cut back to Jeff and Sandra just as they're climaxing together. Wait, was this a thing in the first one? I don't remember this. They do it for the very first kill of Claudette. That's the female camp counselor in the 50s. Um, I rewatched it today. But other than that, there's not a lot of this f dipping to white for, for the kill um, on a freeze frame. It did happen for that first, or I guess the second kill in the first movie. So do you recall the last time we've killed somebody down a flight of stairs in a wheelchair? <laughs> feel like I wouldn't forget that. Fade to black? Yeah. Oh, there you go, yeah. Come on, dip to white, fade to black. Richard Widmark. <laughs> but this is also when I started to learn the characters' names, because he started going Vicky, 
Vicky? I was like, okay, the girl he likes is named Vicky. Yeah. Because then she comes in and goes, Mark? I was like, aha, he's <laughs> Mark. Mystery solved. But but then, like, it's the same with when they when she goes upstairs and goes, Sandra? I was like, okay, Sandra. I'm like, I'm like writing down names. Because I don't remember. They never say anyone else's name. I, I always have to look the stuff up in the first 10 minutes of the movie from the IMDb page and just scribble it all down. Because otherwise, I'll go crazy and then rant on here about how I couldn't figure out who people were. But like then I do you just have to identify people by how they look in their pictures from maybe not 1981. There's a, a section that's like a gallery of pictures from the movie. So if it's a better known movie, then there will be a picture of like three it'll characters tag. and it'll say just those three names. Okay. Yeah. Downstairs, we see presumably Jason enter the main cabin. He crosses the room to grab the spear from Ted's Jason prank around the campfire and he moves up the steps with it. We cut to Jeff and Sandra just as they're climaxing together. Apparently this scene originally had full frontal nudity from Marta Kober as well. But again, she was a minor, 16 years old, and the film was reportedly destroyed. We follow him slowly into the room with Jeff and Sandy, where he sneaks in the door, and Sandy notices him and gasps before Jason spears them both to the bed. The spearhead clacks into the floor underneath them. Most of the kill is also removed, as in the original we see the spear pierce through Jeff's back, but the moment was cut to avoid an X rating. Most of the kills in this film have much more graphic versions in the original cut, but after the MPAA was faulted for being too lenient with the first film, they took this one to task. So 48 seconds in total were removed to get this down from an X to an R rating. The backstabbing here is really good look. Like, yeah, it it's looks great. great. Yeah, I think Carl Fullerton did a great job here. The footage was long thought lost, but it turns out Fullerton, the makeup and effects artist, kept a tape of all the kills for his portfolio and they have been semi-restored uh, for a recent Scream Factory Blu-ray. I think they were they were on a VHS is how he had them. Mm-hmm. Um, but literally the tape was like melted together. So they had to bake it to separate it without okay. breaking the, the magnetic information on the tape. But they were able to get the footage off of it. I mean, as good as if you Google it on YouTube, like uncut kills for Friday the 13th part two, you can see them. Apparently, Marta Kober's fully nude scene was also on that tape, but understandably, Scream Factory did not bother restoring that. In part four of the franchise, one of the characters is Sandra's brother, Rob, who claims to be hunting down Jason for killing his sister. Back at the casino, Ginny is ready to call it a night and takes a ride back with Paul. Ted is going to keep drinking, so Paul tells him to let Maggie drive the pickup. But I think there's a lot more counselors. Like there was like yeah. eight people that went back. They're all going to come back in the same car. I guess they could just fill the bed of the truck. Well, that's what they did. That's when what they, they did on the way out. Yeah. Vicky gets back to the community cabin looking for Mark, but can't find him. She moves upstairs into Sandra's room, but the lump in the bed isn't responding. And when she yanks the sheets off, she uncovers Jason with a bag over his head lying next to Sandra's body. The bag has a single eye hole and a rope around the neck to hold it in place. Jason sits up quickly and slashes at Vicky's leg with a knife, drawing blood. She backs away horrified and crashes into Jeff's corpse, hanging on a coat rack by the door, from what looks like a sheet noose, even though the spear probably killed him plenty. Vicky screams repeatedly as Jason corners her and stabs her with a knife. For this scene, Jason is being played by Steve Dashkowitz, or Steve Dash, who actually plays Jason for the bulk of the full-body Jason scenes, but is for some reason credited as Jason's stunt double, even though he plays Jason for most of this film. Mm -hmm. The look of the bag tied over a killer's head with a rope and eye holes is taken directly from a 1976 film called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, though here it only has one eye hole, where in Sundown, the killer had two. 
Do you recall the last time we had a sack-headed character? <laughs> last episode? Was it the last episode? Bloody birthday? Bloody birthday. Do you recall the time before that? Uh, Elephant Man? Yeah, and that also <laughs> only had one eye hole. Yeah. In fact, some have suggested that Jason is intended to be a sufferer of Proteus Syndrome, like Joseph Merrick in that film. The Volkswagen returns to the camp in the pouring rain. Just as Paul and Ginny are getting out of the car, we see a quick insert of Jason, Jerry Wallace, the PA again, dragging Vicky's body down the stairs. Paul to, is to what end? I don't yeah, know. I don't know where her body goes. I don't know where Jeff and Sandra's bodies go. Jason seems to do a lot of work rearranging bodies. Well, it's bad feng shui to just leave them all over the place. I know. He does take his mom's head all the way to I don't know where to put it in somebody's fridge. And then bring it all the way back? Yeah. yeah. Paul is surprised to see that all the lights are on. Upstairs, Jenny finds Sandra's bed soaked in blood, but the bodies are all gone. Paul thinks it's a prank, but Ginny is certain that they wouldn't take it this far. We hear some more Manfredini, so Jason must be close. The rain slows to a stop, and Paul suggests they leave to find their friends. Suddenly, in the darkness of the living room, Ginny senses a presence. Paul, there's someone in this room. Paul, there's someone in this fucking room! I loved that quote. It's there's, actually like a little bone chilling yeah. for this movie. There's someone in this fucking room. Jason lurches out of the shadows with a spear and barely misses Paul. They wrestle for a bit and Ginny backs around a corner away from the fight instead of helping. When it stops, she calls out for Paul but finds only Jason with the bag over his head. She closes herself in a side room and when everything goes silent on the other side of the door, she reaches for a window to the outside only to have Jason's arm come crashing through it after her. She runs through the door again and all the way across the cabin to the kitchen on the opposite side and locks the door. She grabs a knife and notices someone twisting the locked doorknob when suddenly a pair of arms thrust a pitchfork completely through the door. Ginny runs screaming for the pantry door, but when she opens it, the corpse of Crazy Ralph has been propped up against it and falls forward toward her. Do you guys recall the last time someone opened a pantry door and found a Crazy Ralph? <laughs> to all a good night no how many ralphs have we had <laughs> it was just the first friday the 13th it was the same crazy ralph oh okay but they open the pantry and he's just standing there and he's like you're all doomed <laughs> they're like all right bye that we we're going to other crazy ralphs nope i thought we were making another bloody bur- birthday reference with the the teacher with in the viola cupboard. viola davis in the in the <laughs> cupboard She breaks out of a small kitchen window and starts running for the Volkswagen. She struggles to get the keys out of her pocket, but the car won't start anyway. Jason pops up out the driver's side window, but disappears when she screams. Suddenly, the same pitchfork is being pierced through the ragtop of the car. She shoves open the passenger side door to knock Jason to the ground and then runs away from the car. She hides in the bushes, waiting for Jason to catch up, and then kicks him hard in the balls before running off again. She makes it to another of the cars, but can't get inside it. Jason approaches and she hides behind the car and then runs away into the woods. I, I was like getting really sick of this. Like car to car to car to car to car. Or just like get to location, do some damage. Next location, do some damage. It's like yeah. what 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 is your end game here? What, just what is your plan? Kick him in balls and circles until he dies. Jason approaches her and she hides behind the car and then runs away into the woods. Jason dives at her from some bushes, but misses her on account of the bag probably, and falls to the ground. While shooting this scene, Jason actor Steve Dash actually landed on a real pickaxe and broke multiple ribs. <gasps> oh no. Ginny continues deeper and deeper into the woods and Jason follows her. 
to her cabin. And and I don't get what what this is. Why why she's why doesn't she run down the road? She knows the road goes somewhere. Instead, she's just running out into the woods. She was already at her car, which leads to the road. Like if you if you're just going to run in a direction, run towards civilization. Yeah, why why not run in a direction that you know goes somewhere? I think she is running in a direction of a building she knows she can lock, but it's not doing her much good. She catches up with him there, and we see him search around the room as she lays quietly under her bed. Do you recall the last time we saw someone hiding under a bed from a person chasing them? Sphinx? Does it happen in Sphinx? Yeah, she goes, She it's the bellhop, though. Oh, right. He's just trying to get her to sign for something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll take that answer. Ha <laughs> I was going to Seems Like Old Times. When Charles Grodin keeps coming into the room. And Chevy Chase is hiding under the bed. Oh, yeah. Okay. Under the bed, Ginny notices a rat pass by and in an effort not to scream, closes her eyes tight and pisses herself. We see a steady stream of piss erupting from under the bed and Jason stops leaving when he catches a whiff of it, I assume. (laughs) Unless he's hearing it. Because Jason is also part bear. Yeah. (laughs) Ginny can't see his feet anywhere and starts to climb out, but notices too late that Jason is balancing on a chair ready to stab down on her with the pitchfork, but the chair can't support his weight and crumbles under him, so he misses her again with the weapon. Amazingly, Ginny is able to locate and start a chainsaw from the closet, but she only uses it to scare Jason into a corner. As soon as the chain connects with his sleeve, it seems to shut down, so maybe the fabric got caught up in it or something. She smashes another chair over Jason's head, rendering him unconscious, and instead of killing him right here, she just walks away, back out into the wilderness in a random direction. She passes the small pond, or large puddle, that Deputy Winslow passed earlier, so we have an idea where she's headed. She finds the ramshackle cabin in the woods and assumes friendly people live here and calls to them for help. But it's empty inside. She notices through a window that Jason is racing up to the shack and drops a big branch into the lock on the door to hold it closed. Jason bashes against the door repeatedly, and Jenny finally notices the candlelit shrine that terrified Deputy Winslow earlier. Strewn about the shrine from left to right are the bodies of Terry, officially dead now, Alice with the ice pick still protruding from her temple, and Deputy Winslow. And right in the middle of the mess, in the center of the table, is the head of Mrs. Voorhees with her clothes draped over the table in front where a body should be. So that means that Jason found his mother, presumably before the police because he has the head. Mm -hmm. He also took all of her clothes off and (laughs) kept them and the head. I just imagine him like the jerk, and that's all I need. <laughs> this sweater, and, and then they just come up and find a naked, headless woman on the shore. And the cops didn't have any questions for the crazy lady they found in the lake next to the naked, decapitated body with no head. And don't we even see her body on the side of the lake, and it's not naked at the end of that shot? So where, where did, I mean, this Jason could easily have broken into the morgue and taken all the clothes. Well- but I also assume that she probably has more than one set of clothes. But this was all like dirty and bloody. I mean, I guess that could have happened anywhere with Jason. It's been five years. Against all odds, Ginny is able to access her child psychology skills and hypothesizes that she can psych Jason out of killing her by putting on his mother's clothes here. But when he starts putting on the sweater, I was like, is she going to put the head through the, yeah. s- through the sweater? <laughs> Maybe put her oh, hand in me. there and puppeteer it a <laughs> little. Your mother. It's me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just using know. the voice from terry's shirt over here <laughs> <laughs> Hoo-hoo. 
She pulls on Mrs. Voorhees' sweater before Jason can smash his way inside, and she picks up a machete from the table. When Jason breaks in, she addresses him as his mother. Jason! It's all done, Jason. You've done your job well, and Mommy is pleased. That's a good and Jason does this cute little puppy head tilt thing, like he's still processing all of this as he begins to lower his pickaxe. And we see Ginny from his perspective as her face crossfades into Betsy Palmer's face as Mrs. Voorhees. Mommy has a reward for you. Jason, mother is talking to you! Jason, mother is talking to you. Come on. Come on. That's my boy. Come. Kneel down. That's a boy. Kneel down. Kneel down. He puts down his weapon and stares at her with his one visible eye. She raises her machete in the air, but unfortunately she moves just enough for Jason to get a clear view of his mother's rotting head to remind him that she's gone. He swings the pickaxe at her to block the machete swipe. On the first take of this weapon clanging, Ginny actress Amy Steele accidentally sliced open Steve Dash's finger with the non-prop machete still. <sighs> Why is that even a thing that they're using? He was driven to the ER with a fake machete protruding from his shoulder, and hospital workers were quick to respond, at which point he gestured to the small cut on his hand. <laughs> he got his stitches and returned to set the same night. With a second swing, he tears open her pants and slashes open her leg with the pickaxe. Which, I mean, are pickaxes sharp enough to tear through your skin I like mean, that? I, I guess if you swing it hard enough. I guess, yeah. Suddenly, Paul is entering the cabin... <laughs> yeah, I was like, Paul, you're yeah. alive? And you found and this And a terrible cabin? shot. <laughs> but but he, how did he find them? Yeah. W was he just following casually behind? He was like, Ginny seems like she's got this well in hand. <laughs> I can smell. I can smell her urine. She's this way. <laughs> I think it might have been better to have him call her Ginny to break Jason out of the hypnosis. Or this would have been a really amazing time to show, I mean, spoilers, that the dog was still alive. Yeah. Like he follows the dog. Oh, the dog led him there? Yeah. yeah. Paul fights with Jason again as the ceiling of the shack collapses around them. Ginny works her way back to the machete to help Paul, and this time she slashes Jason deep into the side of his neck, and he falls to the floor drenched in blood. Paul suggests they leave, but Ginny can't overcome her curiosity and pulls the bag off his head. But once again, they don't finish the job. Right, yeah. This is the second time that you've left his body without verifying 100% sure he is dead. Yeah. But when she takes the bag off, they both seem disgusted by what they see, but we don't get a look at it here. The survivors leave together and limp back to the camp. Eventually, Paul has to carry her. Inside a cabin, Paul places her on a bed, and she grasps him tightly, still in shock. She panics when she hears someone at the door. Paul moves to check the door, and Jenny holds up a pitchfork to defend herself, which is probably the most famous pose of this film's marketing campaign, and one of the better-known images from the entire series of her pointing the fork toward camera. Paul is armed with only the shovel of the broken pitchfork, or something that broke earlier, I forget what. But he just has a handle, a metal handle. And when he opens the door, it's Muffin. Jenny calls Muffin across the room and stands to wave her over when Jason comes blasting through the big window behind her. 
for one of the only shots, maybe the only shot in the whole movie with Warrington Gillette as Jason. That's the person who's credited as Jason is only in this one shot where he pulls her through the window. But he grabs his arms tight around her, she screams, and they sort of back out of frame together into the darkness. In shooting this scene, part of the window did not break properly, and Gillette hurt his head for what was essentially his only shot. Gillette was originally cast because he had stunt training, and yet Steve Dash had to be brought on to do 95% of his stunts for the film. His face looks like he's half-melted, his eyes are different sizes, his stringy brown hair is matted to his deformed head in ratty spindles, and he takes Ginny back out the window with him into the night. We dip to white, and she wakes up on a stretcher, being loaded into an ambulance. Bizarrely, the license plate of the ambulance, 577BOC, is the same plate we saw earlier on Jeff's pickup, the outlaw <laughs> 2. <laughs> she asks the EMT where Paul is, but nobody answers her. The ambulance pulls away out of the camp, and we crossfade to the shrine at the collapsed shack, where we push in on the head of Mrs. Voorhees and eventually freeze frame because they decided it looked too corny when her eyes blinked and winked and smiled at the camera here. Yeah, because I was like, that's clearly an articulate head. Yeah, it's a woman yeah. with yeah. her head sticking like, out of the table wearing yeah. makeup. It's You can see that there are eyes yeah. that could open. It looks nothing like the head that was in the refrigerator at yeah. the beginning. And and I kept I kept going back. I kept rewinding it. It's like, is it just slowly opening its No, eyes it doesn't move at all. And, and I'm missing it? The implication of this facial movement, whatever it was going to be, was to answer Ginny's question of where Paul went, implying that somehow Mrs. Voorhees killed him. But because it was cut, there's a whole other argument amongst fans over whether or not Paul survived. And I submit that he clearly did, because we get no indication otherwise. Yeah. We don't, but but what then what happened? Like, what happened with I don't know what Jason? happened, because there's a whole scene missing after he pulls her out the window. But the fan base says that the the window shot of her getting pulled out the window was a dream. Just like the, the pulling out mm. of the canoe shot? Yeah. But if that's true, then where did that dream start? Because there's never a scene where she's like asleep mm-hmm. or just waking up and then something crazy happens. Or gets knocked out or right. takes a head shot. But I think it's just people trying to retcon things because in the next movie, Jason does not look like he did when he came through this window. Yeah. And so they're just trying to say, well, the reason for that is, and it's like, no, 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 no. That's not the reason for it. The reason for the third movie is because nobody cared enough to, to, to try and be consistent over the course yeah. of this franchise. So what happened here is Paul's clearly alive. Muffin's clearly alive. That's the fan base says the dog is dead. And that's another part of what makes it clearly a dream. And it's like, no, no, no. The dog is for sure alive. Yeah. And you're all crazy. But if we don't see Paul die, he's not dead. Because horror film rules dictate that if you don't see someone die, they're not dead. And sometimes even when you do see them die, (laughs) they're not dead. Especially if it's the killer. Yeah. I like this one. I still prefer the first one Mm -hmm. of these two. Um, But it's flashier. Um, they got a more like attractive group of kids. Well, it has more mystery to it because it's the first one, obviously. The first one does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we 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 already know sort of what we're getting ourselves into here with with Jason. Um, I think the first one feels grittier and more homemade. This one feels more polished, mm-hmm. but a little bit less personal. Like I don't really know as much about any of these people as I felt like I did in the first movie. I didn't even know their names until the end. <laughs> yeah. That that was my biggest problem. Is like I can't care about you if I don't know anything about you. 
and there are too many of you for me to care about all of you. Well, there's only like six to eight that we're expected to follow. Right, but... Which is the same as the first movie. But when when they're all in a group together and they're all like talking about each other, it's like, I, I who are all these people and where do they go? Yeah. This movie, it, it's okay. It's not the best. Honestly, I, I after I watched those extended kills, I wished it had, had that because I was like, oh, that would have been a better movie. Yeah, I, I don't think it's enough to to push it back up over the first one, though. I still prefer the kills in My Bloody Valentine this year. I think that yeah. movie is the better slasher of these two. Yeah. This yeah, this one didn't do much. It wasn't horrible, but it was it was just okay. Yeah. It it felt like more of a slasher movie just because it was it, and it felt like more of a modern slasher movie where it's like trying to stay PG-13. Yeah. With yeah the exception yeah. of the nudity obviously, but where all the kills are like really quick or or even just people screaming at camera and cutting away. It's like, "Oh yeah, I guess they're dead." Yeah. They, cuz they screamed at the camera. Um, and like, cause but like again, the, like I don't, I don't consider Terry completely dead until we see her corpse on the shrine at the end, right? Because if they hadn't shown that, then as far as I'm concerned, she's alive as Paul or Ted, these people who just managed to escape the carnage. Mm-hmm. But the people who you actually care about in this film, it's probably limited to Ginny. Obviously, you get because you get the most of her backstory and her personality. Um, and you watched her urinate, and that really makes right. You I feel like somebody. that's a bonding experience yeah. for sure. Um, Vicky is obviously just completely adorable, and it's cute how hard she's just hitting on Mark nonstop. Um, and I like the Mark character because he seems like a sweet guy. Mm-hmm. And I guess in in much like the first one, it's introducing the final girl much later into the movie, yeah, than everyone else. Uh, because she doesn't even show up until like we've kind of established all these like friendships and groups and things like that. And then she comes in in her car uh, and it's just like, oh, I never would have suspected that this is the character that we're going to be following. Yeah. Uh, It seems like like the Sandra, Jeff, Ted was going to be the the main trio of this film. Yeah. Because they had a camaraderie. But then Jeff and Sandra are just fucking the whole time. Like, they're literally just wandering around groping each other for the whole movie. And you never get any character development other than we like touching each other and she likes looking for bloodstains. And then Ted just vanishes after after he goes out drinking. Which Ted is basically just the Ned character from the first movie. They barely changed his name. And he's just prankster. That's his entire character description. But it is funny that he gets rewarded for fucking off and just, mm-hmm. I'm going to drink a hundred beers. And they're like, cool, you get to survive. And I don't even know who Maggie is. When when they're, when he's heading back from the casino, he says, let Maggie drive the pickup yeah. because oh. you're fucking wasted. And it's like, who's Maggie? I don't know. Yeah. We saw like 12 other counselors that don't appear in the rest of the movie. One of them must have been Maggie. Who knows? Yeah, I feel like this... There, I, I, part of the problem is that I don't think that this movie has rules yet. You know, like I feel like a good horror movie sort of establishes a like a, a pattern. You know, I, they talk about that sort of thing in Scream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but this one doesn't really have any logic behind it. Yeah. 
So it's just like, well, why is he doing this? And I suppose it doesn't matter. It's just that it's happening. But I mean, the closest thing we get is Paul's legend, which is that he does it because he doesn't want people here because this is his place. Okay. But it only became his place when he died here or when, when he when drowned When his mother here. died. Yeah. But that's what's weird. It's like, why did you stay here for 30 years after you drown? Between yeah. drowning and your mom dying. Why were you here that whole time? Why yeah. didn't you just go home when she went home? Yeah, because so the, the timeline is Jason drowns, stays drowned. His mom continues to work at the camp. Uh does she? I don't think she does. Or, or, or I think she comes, just she's comes back to work she comes at the camp. Back. Well, the camp is closed for a while. But I right. think she lives in the town, and when she hears that they try to open up the camp again, she's like, "Nope." Yeah. Then she okay. gets upset and she yeah. goes on a killing spree. So, um, but she so like I get like in the first film she has motivation. Yes. Right. And that works for me. Yeah. And even the idea that maybe Jason isn't dead or this is a dream at the end like there's sort of some mystery in there and I'm okay with that but the the bulk of the movie has logic to me. Yeah. And this one I don't feel like has that yet. Cuz I don't think Mrs. Voorhees would have killed crazy Ralph for just kind of walking around. Doing yeah, no, cuz she Ralph had things. she had a specific issue. She had an issue with neglectful counselors. And so but she even would... even you pointed out in the first movie though that when one of the characters pretends he's drowning, all the other counselors spring into immediate action to drag him out of the lake. Yeah. So it's like they're not even neglectful counselors. Yeah. I think her problem is the concept of a camp at all because it means that kids are going to drown inevitably. But she's going to take it out on the counselors specifically. Right. You know, and and so because and she thinks she's avenging her son that Maybe way. that is the same logic here that Jason has a grudge against counselors specifically because they let him drown. Or because know. one of them, one I of mean, them he didn't drown. Mom. But I don't feel like we 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 established that in this film. But but and and I'm sorry that I don't remember. How did he drown? He was in the water. But was he in the water by himself? Was he in with other kids? No, he was by himself. And the, he, he should, was always by himself at the camp. He should have been being watched, but they were off making out instead. Okay. Yeah. And then he drowned. I mean, my, my first experience of these movies, um, I feel like I got a lot of the canon up front because the first time I saw any of them was when uh, Joe Bob Briggs did like a Friday the 13th marathon on Halloween. Um but it looks like they actually skipped the second movie for that. So they did one, three, five, six. Um, so those were the movies that I watched. And then when I saw them and every time they cut to Joe Bob Briggs, he's complaining about all the nudity that got cut out for television. Mm -hmm. Then I was like, all right, well, they have all these at the video store. So I'm just going to go rent them from the video station. Because I don't want to miss out on the yeah, nudity. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And they're all there. And Linda's going to let me rent whatever the hell I want yeah. because she's cool. <laughs> Um, and I was a child and she didn't care. She's like, if it's not behind the curtain, take it, Patrick. I don't care. There was a behind the curtain. Oh, yes. There was. Yeah. Yeah. The video station. Yeah. We had, <laughs> there was a whole porn room. And, and of wow. course, as a kid, I would just sort of walk by and like glimpse through the open in the curtain yeah. and she'd be like, stop Patrick. Um, <laughs> but you know what? In, in retrospect, I'm wondering how bad most of that stuff was. I'm sure it was all mostly soft core. No, I stuff. don't think it was the same stuff that we had at, at Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Really? No, okay. I think, I think Linda was a much more open-minded, uh, video shop owner mm. because Blockbuster had porn. Well, Blockbuster had like Emmanuel and like 
Red Shoe Diaries stuff. No. It's not real porn. Okay. Um, but uh, because the, the the corporation would not allow that kind of stuff in yeah, any of their stores. Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing a, a blocked off section at my Blockbuster. No, but because no, when we worked at the video st- or we worked at Blockbuster, but Blockbuster bought out the video station, yeah. which was this the that Linda owned and operated it herself, and it was her and her husband ran the yeah, place, Glenn, right? I think. And then she was bought out and given a job managing the blockbuster so we worked with her at the blockbuster for a long time um but then yeah i'm pretty sure they just dumped all the inappropriate titles they probably tossed out everything that she had in her store and started over with blockbuster yeah i I can't see them keeping any of that material i wonder what happened to that just piles and piles of vhs's and she had a lot of video games too we rented super nintendo and i'm sure those assets were probably sold off or yeah, maybe just destroyed, but Blockbuster couldn't have used them because they weren't things that they acquired through their distribution. Right, because they need to pay like a hundred dollars per yeah, copy yeah, yeah. Um, to rent it as a Blockbuster rental item. But um, she also was given like some kind of a like a high seniority number for the year. They counted the years she had spent at the video station. Cor- correct, as as years that she had worked at Blockbuster. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I've never seen. I I mean I think. M- Maybe I saw Freddy versus Jason, but I, I've never seen Friday the 13th movies until maybe I saw the first one. But this is my first time seeing the second one, and Same. it's going to be my first time seeing all the rest of them. I've seen all of them, uh, but it's been a really long time. Like some of these I probably haven't seen since like the late 90s. Yeah. So, like, the only thing that I know about Jason is like the, the stuff that just comes through general pop culture right you know his his look his machete his mask and none of that stuff is really fully established yet it's going to solidify in the third film okay. that's what that's when the hockey mask shows up and that's when he he really shows the preference for the machete as, okay. a, as his tool and does and do we get clear motivation in the third one i don't remember that much i don't think i was thinking a lot about killer motive i was just like uh which of these boobs will I get to see in this movie? <laughs> um, but I think uh, I think it becomes almost a joke by by the time obviously Jason Ten rolls around that it's just oh he doesn't like people who have premarital sex and do anything sort of like uh, he's he's like a Puritan murderer mm. um, and and he doesn't like when people do anything vulgar or inappropriate, but he also doesn't like people coming to Crystal Lake. But hardly any of the films, I think literally the first film takes place at Crystal Lake, and then after this one, we don't even see a camp for a long time. I think there's one at Mental Asylum, and then obviously- takes Manhattan. Yeah, Manhattan, and Jason goes, goes to, to hell, hell, and Jason X. So there's like, we take a while to even come back to a camp setting. Okay. Um, I think I've seen Jason Goes to Hell. I think- like, I think that is one that I've seen. Was that in 3D? Um, Jason 3 is in 3D. Okay, then that's not, that's not the one that I saw. You might be thinking of Nature Trail to Hell in 3D, <laughs> which is a Weird Al Yankovic song about Jason 3, sort of. I mean, a parody of Jason 3, which is great. But yeah, I still think it's a thumbs up because I'm going to say probably a thumbs up to all the Friday the 13th movies just because I like the series. I've always liked Jason. Yeah, I mean, I'll give it a thumbs up. I it's not something that I'd recommend to everyone, but if you're a horror person, yeah, definitely watch this movie. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> we knew that was coming though. Thumbs down. No, I and and really honestly, it it's because I feel it was declawed 
in in post yeah uh, for the mpa and and there were just too many characters and i didn't care about them what how does it rank compared to the first friday the 13th for you uh i like the first one better yeah okay so, so we, we all three agree on that yeah point. yeah i mean but yeah this this was just again to, to jesse's point there's no motivation he kills ralph i, I feel right. like he he killed he killed the the nosy sheriff like i feel like he would have killed anybody who would have come to that location yeah um or even maybe beyond since he he followed that one girl yeah and what is the what is the motivation for that that he would literally like potentially go across state lines to yeah. find yeah. her and kill her i don't know is he gonna kill all those other counselors like is that yeah is, is everybody they, else next on the table is there a final destination well, list? i mean i feel like that one was specifically trying to get revenge for his mom maybe yeah so so maybe he cared more about tracking yeah. her down yeah but it does seem like you know all these other people did uh did encroach on your lake are you gonna seek out maggie and the rest of the gang and uh ted mm-hmm. and and all of them when they come back here tomorrow or are you gonna chase down paul or Ginny because they survived this fight um but Ginny is not in the next film but the the next film uh takes place i think like the next day or the in the next couple days the the third and fourth film both take place like within a week of this film I also object to this being called part two because it implies a continuation of story. And yeah. It's really completely different. I, yeah, I do think that the, the title Jason probably fit better, but I mean, branding, you know, I mean, you can still call it Friday the 13th and maybe even Friday the 13th to Jason. Yeah. Uh, or Jason colon Friday the 13th. Yeah. Uh, like, but to imply but this doesn't feel like two, the second part of a story. Yeah. Uh, where does this go? Letterboxed. I have it at 43. Out of out how of, many? Out of 50. Okay. Uh, this puts it below Pinball Summer, but above Scared to Death. Below Pinball Summer? Uh, you don't even realize what you're saying. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I do. You really like Pinball Summer, huh? You, could, you should see my list. It's all all just bad horror films in one terrible Jerry Lewis movie. <laughs> <laughs> at the bottom? Yeah. Uh, what do you got? All right, I put it, it's not super high. I put it at 31 out of 50. Okay. It is below Blood Beach and above Nighthawks. I have it in eighth out of 50. Eight? Yeah, so it's under Excalibur and just above The Howling. What? That's where I put it. I like Jason. You're weird. Also, that Terry girl was crazy hot and completely naked in this movie. <laughs> that's that's what brought it over the howling okay not enough nudity in the howling despite all the <laughs> unconsensual nudity in that movie <laughs> director steven minor he was the producer of the first film in fact the character of steve christie who managed the camp crystal lake was named after steve minor the producer he went on to direct the third installment followed by house soul man forever young my father the hero Halloween Water, Lake Placid, and more recently, lots of television, including nine episodes of Chasing Life, created by our friend Susanna Fogel. Sorry, I'm still, I was like, Halloween Water, and then it just, it took me that long to get there, just now. (laughs) I know uh, some people call it Halloween H2O, like scientists call it Halloween H2O, but it will always be (laughs) Halloween Water to us laymen. (laughs) 
Writer Ron Kurtz rewrote Friday the 13th last year when changes were requested to Victor Miller's draft by the financers. Before that, he wrote King Frat for Ken Whiterhorn, or Viterhorn, as it might be pronounced, who he wrote for again earlier this year, penning the non-Friday the 13th Georgetown production, Eyes of a Stranger. He returns next year with the script for Friday the 13th 3D, and in 83, he writes Off the Wall, and then it's all character credits on Jason sequels for the rest of his IMDb. Uh, characters here were provided by Victor Miller, who wrote the first draft of Friday the 13th and gets character credits in everything else. Uh, his only other non-Jason credits are something called A Stranger is Watching in 82, lots of soap opera episodes, and a horror film called Rock, Paper, Scissors in 2017, starring Michael Madsen and Tatum O'Neill. We also have character credits for Sean S. Cunningham, I don't know what characters the director would have come up with. I don't remember him getting character credits in the first film. But uh, after a few softcore outings and a couple ripoffs of successful films, Cunningham struck gold with what started as a Halloween ripoff directing the first Friday the 13th last year. He did not care for the Part 2 script and never returned to direct any further Friday installments. Though in 82, he directed Victor Miller's script, A Stranger is Watching, which stars Kate Mulgrew and Rip Torn. Hmm. Sounds interesting. I like them. The music here was from Harry Manfredini. Obviously, he did the first one and many sequels. He's a composer for the House series. He did 12 of David Dakota's 1313 movies, as well as A Talking Cat and A Talking Pony. Cinematographer Peter Stein. After this, he was a DP on Chud, Ernest Saves Christmas, Pet Cemetery, and Mr. Nanny. Editor Susan E. Cunningham. This was her first editing credit. She is the wife of the first film's director, Sean S. Cunningham, and would come back to edit two more films directed by her husband, A Stranger is Watching, and the sex comedy Spring Break. Special effects were from Carl Fullerton. He'd previously worked on The Wiz, Altered States, and Eyewitness. He followed this with credits on Wolfen and Ghost Story this year. Part 3 next year, Remo Williams, FX, Warlock, Goodfellas, Godfather 3, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, with Oscar nominations for Remo and Philadelphia. And after his work on Glory and Philadelphia with Denzel Washington, he became Washington's regular makeup person for basically every Denzel title since the late 90s. Associate producer Frank Mancuso Jr. At the time of the first film's success, Frank Mancuso Sr. was the executive vice president of Paramount Pictures, and it was his idea to take the chance distributing the first installment, this low-budget horror film. His son, Frank Mancuso Jr., was brought onto the production of the second film where he started basically as like a production assistant. He was working on set, just helping people out, and essentially worked his way up to an associate producer credit by the time they had wrapped. At the end of the production, Mancuso Jr. approached director Steve Miner for advice. He had two job offers, assistant to Paramount's mega producer Robert Evans, or to produce his own smaller title. Miner suggested he produce something for himself, and that became the third Friday the 13th film. Mancuso would go on to produce the third, fourth, fifth, and seventh installments and the TV series, which he created. He also produced April Fool's Day, Cool World, Species 1 through 3, Ronin, and Stigmata. And if you know anything about Cool World, you know that Ralph Bakshi was not happy with that movie. Mm. And apparently he got in such a fight with Frank Mancuso Jr. that he punched him in the face. Oh my goodness. Uh, during, the, uh, during their arguments. Amy Steele plays Ginny here. She's back later in the 80s as Kit in April Fool's Day. She was offered the lead role in Friday the 13th Part 3, which would initially have taken place in the hospital immediately following the events of this film, but her agent talked her out of it, insisting that she had bigger roles to consider. She regrets turning down the offer because she did not have bigger roles to consider. She later auditioned for the role that went to Rene Russo in the Lethal Weapon series. 
and said that it was creepy kissing Mel Gibson during her audition. What? They had all the girls kiss Mel Gibson? I feel like that's... He would definitely request that. Gross. He's a gross man. The character of Ginny is named after Virginia Field, the production designer of the first two Friday the 13th films. John Fury played Paul. He appeared in Island Claws as Chuck, who proposes to his girlfriend publicly and prematurely. He has mostly TV credits since this. Adrian King was Alice. This was her last film until 2010. So she disappeared for a long time um, after this one. Kristen Baker played Terry. We've seen her previously as Sunshine, one of Leon's girls <laughs> in Midnight Madness last year. She was also a jogger and cruising. She doesn't have many credits moving forward. Stuart Charno played Ted. This was his first film. He's back as one of the bullies in Christine. He's in Just One of the Guys and Once Bitten. Uh, he's also a writer. Oh, is he? Um, and he's written uh, a couple of TNG episodes, including one of my favorites called The Wounded. Oh, okay. Um, and I was like, or he did, he has a story by credits. So Interesting. I mean, he didn't write the actual teleplay, but he's got story by credits for TNG. Oh, that's awesome. Warrington Gillette played Jason uh, in one scene, just just the made up Jason with the bulgy head. At six foot one, Gillette is the shortest actor to portray Jason. Walt Gorney played Crazy Ralph. He shows up as Duke Domestic in Trading Places and a stage manager in Nothing Lasts Forever. He returns to the franchise as the uncredited narrator of Friday the 13th Part 7 in 88, and he was born the day the Titanic sank. So he might be Jack Dawson reincarnated, that's all I'm saying. Marta Kober played Sandra. She's Becky and Rad. She's a pizza girl in Slumber Party Massacre 3. She was a child when she made this movie, and they filmed her naked having sex with people. Tom McBride played Mark. We'll see him next in Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, and he unfortunately passed away of complications from AIDS in 1995. Bill Randolph played Jeff. He was the cab driver willing to completely destroy his car and dress to kill last year. Lauren Marie Taylor played Vicky. She doesn't have a lot of other credits, but she did have a huge crush on Mark actor Tom McBride and did not know that he was very publicly, openly gay at the time and found out like after hours of hitting on him that he was like, no, 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 you're, you're wasting your time here. I'm sorry. Russell Todd played Scott. We had him in He Knows You're Alone. Uh, he's back in Chopping Mall in 86, and he had a long run as Dr. Jamie Frame in 129 episodes of Another World. Betsy Palmer played Mrs. Voorhees again. Uh, after this, she would play Virginia Bullock in 29 episodes of Knott's Landing. Palmer finished shooting her inserts in half a day, and it was such an easy job that at conventions later, she has claimed never to have worked on any of the sequels because she straight up forgot. <laughs> Cliff Cudney played Max. Who's Max? Yes. I don't know. I paid pretty close attention. I don't remember Max. They were counselors, maybe. We didn't know their names. Max. Max was the tow truck driver at the beginning. We had him recently (laughs) as an ATAC man, ATAC man in Nighthawks. Jack Marks played the cop. He doesn't have a lot of other credits, but he's really excited that his character got a name in the novelization so that he can be Deputy Winslow at conventions and sign things. (laughs) Steve Dash was Jason's stunt double. This is the fourth title that we've covered for him after uh, The Jazz Singer, Nighthawks, and Miss 45, basically all cop characters. So in Jazz Singer, he was one of the cops that arrests them at the beginning after their show. In Nighthawks, he's one of the ATAC men. And in Miss 45, he's one of the two cops with the writer of the film who's sitting in with the landlady yeah. saying, oh, so what happened? Who's who's this Phil person? Oh, that's my dog. Um, 
Yeah, those are all the credits I had for this one. Dogs we think are getting murdered that didn't actually get murdered. Yeah, we definitely, the, the dogs have two lives, it turns out. Yeah, yeah, so what was that? What was what? What was the body that? It was a dead Shih Tzu. <laughs> Just some other random Shih yeah, It's a wild Shih Tzu. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had to domesticate them from somewhere. <laughs> turns out they all come from Crystal Lake. Jason's been living off of them for years. <laughs> he breeds them for food. Yeah. <laughs> the old ranch. <laughs> I love ranch on the side of my Shih Tzu. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I think that's everything for Friday the 13th, part two. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. You guys hear that? What? We got Another one. Tanya has joined the crew. She is a new patron. She now has access to 17 full-size reviews of 70s titles that we do monthly. And she has access to 13 mini-sodes so far this year. And there's seven more coming down the pipe before the end of the year. So uh, I will shoot you a link, Tanya, and make sure that you're able to find all of those. um, Because we work really hard on them and we want people to listen to them if (laughs) if they have access. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Firecracker, which IMDb describes like so. Femme fatale martial arts expert teaches the mafia a lesson. We leave you now with the trailer for Firecracker. See Jillian Kessner, grand prize winner at the Black Belt Olympics. She'll mix seduction with destruction in the screen's first erotic kung fu classic. <laughs>